everyone. Welcome once again to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris, as always. I uh, want to talk about a bunch of stuff. It's kind of some unrelated things in a way, I guess. So there's not like a common thread today. But I want to talk about Todd Bankert uh, and his appointment to the Sexual Abuse Task Force in the Southern Baptist Convention. So some Southern Baptist news for all of you. I know some of you are turning it off right now. I don't want to hear about that denomination. Well, that's not all there is, though. We're talking about Marvin Alasky, who wrote uh, The Tragedy of American Compassion, I believe. He was the one that, I think, helped craft George W. Bush's compassionate conservatism. But more recently, um, he was the uh, the chief editor at World Magazine, and uh, the New York Times has a take on him that is much different than, I think, the reality. And so I want to, uh, oh, I just want to show you kind of what's being said. There's some things that came out about him recently. And then Glenn Youngkin, governor of Virginia, I just want to, uh, since I did kind of take a stand against Glenn Youngkin in the primaries in Virginia. I wanted to let you know kind of where, in some ways, on social issues especially, where things ended up. Because Christians in Virginia voted for him on the basis of, well, he says he's a good Christian. He speaks the language. He, we have got to be way better at vetting. We have got to be way better at researching our candidates. If we spent, if you spent like half an hour online or less, and I realize not everyone has that time, but even 10 minutes of just doing some research on Glenn Youngkin, I think you'd find, wait a minute, does this add up? And um, and, and unfortunately, a lot of the things that I said uh, are coming true. A lot of the things that I warned about uh, are happening. So uh, it's, it's an example. So anyway, let's start here. Um, I'm going to start by playing a video for you. Todd Bankert uh, is with SBC Voices. And it's an outlet, I would say, more to the left in the SBC, for sure. But um, let me give you a little sampling before I play the video of Tom. some of the things Todd Bankert has put out there publicly. Now, he's been appointed to the Sexual Abuse Task Force by the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I, I haven't seen all the responses from conservatives, but the few I have seen seem awfully weak to me. And I, I think, you know, there, there's... The thing that concerns me about a guy like Todd Bankert, if I was to be concerned, if I was in the denomination, wouldn't be as much some of the things that are being focused on now. It would be his overall philosophy. His overall philosophy. He's look The job that he's going to do on the sexual abuse task force, is he actually capable of doing it or is he going to be biased? Is he going to have a conflict of interest? Is he going to faithfully execute his duties in that office? And I think the answer is if you look at just a brief perusal of some of the things that he's put out there. And then I want to play for you a longer clip from him, Rachel Denhollander, and then, um, oh, I forget the name of the other guy, but the other guy from SBC Voices. Uh, I'm going to just, it'll give you an insight into kind of what Todd Mankert's about when it comes to this this issue of sexual abuse. So here's some of the things that he put out there on Twitter. He says, before the Me Too uh, moment hits your church to be protective in addressing the sexual assault now sexual assault now and he reposts sbc voices is 2018 and it says uh it says the same thing and it's got someone holding me too hashtag me too so he's saying in 2018 i'm you know i'm on this bandwagon i'm on this this uh this me too bandwagon uh let me let me see if i can pull it up for you so you can actually see it here you go i'm gonna minimize myself a whole lot so you can see this uh, then you have, here's another one from him. Note that this discussion is not new, nor, and he's talking about uh, whether or not David raped Bathsheba, a controversy that's reemerged because Rachel Hollander said, we need to understand David raped Bathsheba. It wasn't consensual. Except the text doesn't tell us. He's not getting it from the text. So Todd Bankert says, note that this discussion is not new, nor is it some novel interpretation inspired by the Me Too moment or movement. Whether or not you want to use the term rape, it is quite clear that the Bible condemns only David and that more than mere fornication took place. Hmm. Really? Okay. So we see what side he's on on that one. Jennifer Lyell, he says, is my sister in Christ. And we talked about Jennifer Lyell's situation. Go back to my videos on that. I support her. I believe her. I care about her. I stand with her and against anyone who hurts her. She's been through hell, not only by her abuser, but even more so by many of you. Leave her alone. And this is when... Uh, you know, Megan Basham put out the article that she did and, um, and and really poking a lot of holes in this narrative. And it's in Todd Bankert, again, you know, not examining the evidence, the facts here, not bringing us through any of that, explaining things. It's just it's the Me Too response. It's just we just got to believe her and you need to stop attacking her. You have um, here again, uh, he's I mean, there's just so many of these, you you know, this is just representative of a lot, a lot of his posts. 
Uh, he's heading to Nashville for the convention uh, to stand with survivors. And he, he made a big to-do about it. Had like, I think, t-shirts and all kinds of things. Sign he's carrying here. Uh, be like Jesus. Take abuse ser- seriously and love victims. And then you have here, all this time, Jennifer Lyle's case was on my mind, especially when Baptist press wrongly led Southern Baptists to believe her abuse was consensual and refusing to correct themselves and make it right. Hmm. And then he says this, and I just had to include this. He goes, calling me woke is not an insult. He said this in 2020 during the riots. Well, it was May 7th. Calling me woke is not an insult. I mean, how many more black men have to be killed or... Okay, so this is before the right before, I guess, or native women and girls go missing or children get molested by a minister before you wake up to hashtag Ahmaud Arbery, uh, hashtag church too. So, yeah, he's so, so he's calling he's saying that it's a compliment to call him woke. This is the person that's now going to be heading up or part of the sexual abuse task force. So they're going to be the ones creating policy and responsible to help police sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. And this is someone who can't even correctly have a suspicion, identify uh, issues that would at least arise, uh, cause someone to think that there, that there should be some suspicion surrounding like the Jennifer Lyle case. It's just, you got to believe it. So this is the kind of person that's in that position. Now, let me play for you an event that he co-hosted and you're going to hear his voice in here. And along with Rachel Den Hollanders and a few others and um, see, see what you think about this. The purpose of this breakout Uh, is to talk about how trauma-informed care can be useful in the church. Anything that has formed in that neural pathway in response to their trauma, especially in a church setting, can be incredibly triggering. The worship songs that their pastors played, the Bible verses they used to keep them silent, the sound of a man's voice reading scripture, all of those things can be neurally connected to those traumatic memories and then cause a cascade of physical and emotional realities and coping mechanisms. And if you don't understand all of those connections, you are going to misdiagnose what you are looking at. And here's a really common example. Survivors of sexual assault often, not always, but often act out sexually, very sexually aggressively. And oftentimes this is an attempt to regain some form of control over their sexuality. I actually have a high number of survivors that have told me, I wish I had modeled for Playboy, or I wish I had entered, because at least then I would be wielding my own sexuality rather than having it wielded against me. This often creates a cycle of abusive relationships in the survivor's life, partly because they've lost the ability to define what's normal, and partly because they have reached this situation Uh, where they are continually trying to wield their sexuality, continually trying to regain control. And even if that means a cycle of unhealthy and abusive relationships, if they're the one initiating it, it can at least feel like they're wielding their sexuality rather than having it weaponized against them. This creates a, just a complete paradigm shifting for survivors of what normalcy is. And you're gonna see this play out in the survivors that you are ministering to. You're going to see things in their lives that look to you like, oh, that's anger, that's sin, that's these things. But what it is, is a coping mechanism for what they've suffered. And if you can't help get to the root of what is going on, you're going to mislabel those things. It is absolutely imperative that we start understanding that God did not make us dualistic beings. Here's your body, here's your soul. That's Gnosticism. We rejected that a long time ago, like way back when the Bible was being written. And we need to go back to theological orthodoxy and realize that God created us body and soul. And there is an intermingling of those realities. And trauma does not just cause a thought wound. Trauma causes a physical wound. And you can see it in the brain scans. You can see it in the blood work. It's there, it's real, and it's got to be treated that way. How does trauma-informed ministry relate to the Bible and our view as Baptists in the sufficiency of Scripture? I think it's an important question. Uh, One of the things I I want to mention that it is consistent with Scripture, and I could uh, spend a lot of time going into that. I will just ask you to observe when Dave comes up the things that he's saying. Does that resonate with you as things that are contrary to Scripture or in line with Scripture? Uh, And I want to go a little bit more and say uh, what 
trauma-informed care does for us is to help us define problems accurately so that we can apply the scripture appropriately. Uh, if we don't understand what's happening with trauma, we're not going to be able to use the scripture in a way that is helpful. Uh, I th- thought it was very helpful. Matthew Barrett, one of our uh, professors of theology at Miss Midwestern Seminary, uh, spoke of sufficiency this way. He says, sufficiency does not mean that scripture functions alone apart from any other source or authority. Rather, that all other authorities serve under the scripture, while scripture rules over them as the final inspired authority. And I think that's important to understand, that when we say that the Bible is sufficient, we are not saying that the Bible is the only authority that we have. What we're saying is that all other authorities, all other sources, must come under the authority of scripture. Uh, We've had resolutions that have stated that. Uh, That is part of our Baptist distinctive and our Baptist faith. And so, as Rachel explained, trauma is not merely a spiritual issue. Trauma is an issue that affects uh, our physical and physiological being as well. And so trauma uh, is not just what happened to us, but it is our experience of what happened to us. And so if we're going to understand how to minister to trauma, we're going to have to understand that trauma is not only answered with spiritual truisms, but it comes with a full understanding of the physiological, physical, mental, and spiritual effects uh, that trauma has in our experience. In my opinion, there is no better uh, Christian resource on trauma than Diane Langberg's book, Suffering in the Heart of God. The Bible's full of trauma, and you'll often hear trauma-informed care speak in a shift of thinking between what is wrong with you and what happened to you. Has anyone heard that before? The shift in, in thinking between what is wrong with you and what happened to you. Now, those aren't biblical categories, but can I give you the corresponding biblical categories? What is wrong with you is the issue of sin. What has happened to you is the issue of suffering. We don't have a Bible that speaks only to the problem of sin and not to the problem of suffering. The scripture speaks to both issues. And so when we often focus on the problem of suffering, uh, the theodicy and where does suffering come from and trying to explain why suffering happens, sometimes we want to talk about the purpose of suffering. We'll go to Romans 8.28 and the, and, and the very truth that God is using suffering in our lives, but we don't have the answer sometimes to the very presence of suffering in someone's life. And that's what we're dealing with when we're dealing with trauma. We're dealing with the presence of ongoing suffering uh, in a person through the responses that they're having in their experience with a traumatic event. And so the sufficiency of Scripture is limited only by our willingness to follow the whole counsel of God. Now, that's a sermon in itself, but the church's focus, and, and I would say primarily the white evangelical church uh, is focused. I think there's a lot that we can learn from our African-American and First Peoples and Asian cultures that have much more re- robust theologies of suffering than we do uh, in the white evangelical American church. Uh, however, in, in, in our context, we often see just that lack of being able to focus on uh, suffering. How can we not also contextualize our ministry to deal with the one out of four people in our congregation that have experienced significant trauma? Dave's going to share how important that is, and I want to invite you to come and and just talk about, uh, in general terms, how is it that we begin to be trauma-informed in the church? It starts with empathy. That is the absolute starting point for trauma-informed care because it's exactly what Jesus told us to do, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and then love your neighbor as yourself. Loving another as yourself is to imagine, right, us in their position. That is what empathy is. When I came forward about being abused, I called pastor after pastor, church after church, entity after entity, and I had to explain in detail every single time what was happening to me. 
I wanted them to alert what was happening. Let me ask you all something. How, how many of you ever been into an emergency room? I know this has got to be everybody in the room, right? Everybody's gone to an emergency room. How many times did you have to tell people the exact same thing? How many nurses and doctors, right? Over and over and over. Did you wonder if anybody was listening to you? Now imagine, now imagine you've been sexually abused. And you're not just telling it to the same people in one night and one ER. Now you're having to say this story over for years, for decades. See, I know you can empathize because you have Christ in you. So you can do that. And we got to listen. My granddaddy always told me, son, you got two ears and one mouth. Use them proportionately, <laughs> right? This isn't about having pity. It's about loving them, laughing with them, lamenting with them. And how do we listen? I hear you. I believe you. How can I help? Just ask the question, how can I help? And let them know that it was not their fault and whatever feelings and emotions they're having, they are normal and they are natural. Do you know the available resources in your area? Do you have any available resources? Sometimes you have to go online. Is there an advocacy, a child advocacy center near you? Victim advocates, forensic interviewers, victim services department, these are all things we need to know. And you might hear, hear somebody tell you, well, but that's not a Christian organization. Maybe or maybe not. Do you call 911? Do you use district attorney's office if someone harms you and your family, right? There are all manner of organizations that we as Christians utilize for help for a particular reason. And it is not any different when it comes to trauma-informed care. How do these sins and crimes often get described? Well, it wasn't really as bad as they say. It was an adultery, it was adultery, it was an affair, it was a mistake, and my favorite, sarcastically. It was an inappropriate relationship. No, folks, it is child molestation and it is rape. And for a denomination that has no problem calling out lots of sins, we need to start calling it what it is. We have to stop using this benign language. Communicating insignificance. How do we do that? Platitudes, right? These are the things that we say when we really don't want to talk about it. You need to forgive and move on. You need to get over it. It was a long time ago. Hey, out of tragedies, good things come. Or, again, my favorite, well, it was God's will. No. God did not will for children to be raped for his glorification. That is neither trauma-informed, and it is certainly not scripture. It is not biblical. Genuine repentance must include total admission of crimes, not just the ones for which they've been caught. Total cooperation and submission to the criminal justice system. Acceptance and submission of the survivor's preferred boundaries. And voluntary acceptance of any and all boundaries placed by church leadership. It is a sin and a crime, and any offender that refuses that, that is not bearing the fruit of repentance. Recently, it was revealed to you some of the things that was said about survivors. We were troublemakers, and we were evil, and we were schemers of Satan, damaging the work of Jesus. I hope, I hope we know now differently. I hope we know now that the survivors were the truth tellers. Humility in the face of historical, cultural, and gender factors. You can go ahead and flip it to the next one. We don't know what another person's life experiences is. We have not walked a mile in their shoes. And in Philippians, it tells us clearly, in humility, consider others more than yourselves. So you just heard Rachel Den Hollander. You heard uh, Dave Miller, who's also from SBC Voices. And then in the middle there was Todd Bankert, who, were, uh, who was appointed to the Sexual Abuse Task Force. This was at SBC 2022, this is last June, and an event they held, uh, SBC Voices held. And you first heard Rachel Denhollander talking about the reason that there's some sexual sin, really, sexual sinful behavior among abuse survivors is that, uh, that's the term they use, abuse survivors, is that 
uh, it, it's a way of trying to cope with sexual sin in their past. Now, uh, <laughs> I can see opportunities to um, soft pedal sin based on that. And I'm sure that some people may take those opportunities. The Bible does speak clearly about it. it you can understand things, but the Bible still also speaks clearly about sin. It is against God. And I think that's something that primarily needs to be understood here is that it's not just horizontal human relationships here. It's not just that when there's abuse that happens or sexual sin happens of any variety, that it's just, uh, it's something that takes place between individuals. And there's a, uh, that certainly happens. There's sin there, but there's also, and primarily so sin against the creator going outside of his, boundaries for sexual expression. And so uh, whether or not someone is trying to regain control of their life, they are still making war on the creator. They still have a sinful black heart if they are engaging in that sin. It's not an excuse and it's not, uh, it doesn't even, I, I don't even know what I think about that, whether that makes it more understandable or not. That's, so I, I don't really want to comment on it. I just know what the Bible says about sexual sin. And I know that um, it's it doesn't have this category that Rachel Den Hollander is trying to give. You, this isn't being drawn from Scripture, which Rachel Den Hollander just said. And Todd Bankert is trying to say this is biblical. This whole thing's biblical. But where, where do you find that distinction made in Scripture between those two? So um, this is a this is coming from psychology th- that view. Uh, Gnosticism. Uh, she accuses or implies that Christians have a problem with Gnosticism. This is, and I, I talked about this just the other day uh, in Carl Truman's book. I said that this is a, a common thing to accuse Christians of is that they downplay the body too much. They downplay the body. They need to realize that we're body and soul. And um, I, I think it's odd when you do it without, there just doesn't seem to be much evidence of it out there. Maybe, maybe I'm missing something. Put in the comments. If I'm missing something and there's all this Gnosticism, but the Gnosticism I see is more, it's the standpoint theory stuff. It's the, I have this, this knowledge that you don't have access to because I have an experience. I have, uh, I, you can't even question my experience that I said I had because it's my experience and I'm a victim. And once it's got that protected victim status, you're not even allowed to bring evidence in that would overturn the assumption that someone's a victim. That's the Gnosticism I see. I don't see people who are saying, you know, what happens in the body doesn't matter or whatever she's trying to imply here, that uh, it's it's irrelevant or something, what happens in your body. I just, I don't know. I just, I haven't had experience and I've had, I think, I hope a, a well-rounded evangelical experience being all the different institutions I've been at, but I haven't really ran into this. All right. So uh, uh, there's also talk about here, let's see, uh this is what Todd Bankert basically says, is that trauma-informed counseling helps to define the problem more accurately. And I, I'm somewhat sympathetic with the idea that there, because I, I know this in the political realm, there are categories, there are, there are things that people have observed that I think can help facilitate a discussion. Um, I just talked about in, in the last podcast, distinctions in human relationships that exist. Um, national distinctions, familial distinctions, you know, you can arrive at some of these conclusions without looking in the pages of scripture. You'll find scripture assumes these things, but, but you can, you can come at these things because these are part of the natural world, the natural revelation God's given us. Well, um, anyway, uh, he says that this, this particular form of counseling, this psychologized form of counseling, though, trauma-informed counseling, he calls it, helps to define the problem more accurately. And, and this is where I have a caution that kind of goes up. It, it, it can, as long as it's true, as long as it, and, and if it has assumptions undergirding it that contradict scripture or directly contradict scripture, then it, it's not true. And it's, it's something you got to reject it. And so that's the real question here. And this is what, where I'm suspicious um, because of some of the other things I heard. It, this doesn't sound to me like it's something derived from a biblical anthropology. Uh, there's a, um, he, he basically insinuates that the church has a problem separating sin and suffering. And uh, maybe some churches do, I guess, but it's, or, or recognizing, I should say, suffering. But he's saying that this approach, though, takes into account suffering. And how does it take into account suffering? 
it takes into uh, suffering into account uh, by asking the question, what happened to you? So it, it puts you more in the victim position. And so and what you see in this whole thing is a, the sense you're getting is, okay, so you, you engage in sexual sin, but you're a victim. So it's more, more understandable. Uh, the question you got to ask is what happened to you? And that's the determinative thing here. It's taking responsibility off the person. Now, the, the person who is legitimately a victim is not, of course, responsible it, for sin that's not their own. Obviously, that's true. Uh, and, and so if there's a Christian going around saying that, you, you know, like the, uh, the Pharisees did to some extent, like um, people in India's caste system, I'm reading a book right now that talks about the India's caste system that, you know, imply that you did something bad in a previous life. And, and that's it's your actions that are linked to your circumstances every time. Of course, that's wrong. But I don't, it, you know, and Christians probably can't act that way. But is that really what's going on, broadly speaking? Is that like a pernicious issue, a, a systemic issue in the evangelical church? I, I, I'm skeptical about that. I haven't really seen that. If anything, I see it, it's leaning the other way. Like people who have victim status don't really have to have much responsibility. They don't have to, they, they get the benefit of being defended. And even if they're exposed later and they've had lies, it's like, you know, like with, with the Jennifer Lyle situation, it's like even the things that were not true that she said can't be admitted by anyone. It's like, even if you're not questioning her whole narrative, you're just saying, okay, here's some things though that she said that weren't true. And we've seen now they're not true. You can't question it. So that's, there's a protected status that, that is given here. And, and it's, it's, he admits here, it's a shift. It's a shift from, from asking questions about, you know, what, uh, what did you do? I think, or what did he, what did he say? What, 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 what sin has been committed or, or whatever, but what happened to you? It, it's looking at the person as, as passive in that endeavor, uh, in, in whatever took place. Um, then he, he says that basically whites, though, he, there's a lot of insinuating that the church has a problem. Specifically, whites have a problem. Whites don't have an understanding of suffering. They don't have a robust theology of suffering. You got to go to indigenous people and black people to understand suffering, apparently, because white people don't have that. It's, they don't have developed theology on this. And it's interesting, though, because like the books he recommends are white people. <laughs> I, I included one of them in there, the Diane Lamberg book. I was just like, well, where are all these resources you're talking about then? I mean, or is this just a talking point to belittle and to to uh, try to just keep more scorn upon white people? Um, and then Dave Miller says some of the, this is the stuff that really, so, so a lot of, there's a lot of suspicions. There's a lot of things that I'm like, that doesn't sound right. It's just, but then Dave Miller makes things clearer for me here. And this is where I'm like, wait, hold on. He says it starts with empathy. All right, it starts with empathy. So you got to put yourself in that other person's sh shoes. And then he abuses scripture to make the point. So he says it starts with empathy. And that means loving your neighbor. And that's what that is. It's putting yourself. No, no, that, that no, that's not. You're just inserting that. You're just taking a scripture and then you're inserting your own meaning into it. Um, actually, uh, I'm not going to be able to relate to everything someone else has done. And they're not going to be able to relate to everything I've done or experienced. We're just not. That's the, that's the truth of the matter. And so it, it doesn't, I, I don't think counseling starts with empathy. Uh, it, sympathy should be present, I would think, if you're, if certainly if you're a victim, but it starts with a love for God and a love for others. Well, what does that look like? Well, his law is his love. Love and law go together. That's what Jesus summarized the law in love your neighbor, love God. So a respect for those things is going to be there. A willing to sacrifice for the other person is going to be there. And the truth cannot be compromised because we're supposed to speak the truth in love. That has to be there. Well, where's the truth in this? Where's God's law in this? You don't hear them. It talked about. It's a psychologized understanding. Uh, that, that doesn't seem, it's not, either it's not compatible or it can't be completely interwoven with what the Bible teaches on this stuff. Uh, like the very next thing he, he says, you have to say, I believe you, you have to. So you start off from the posture. I just believe the story. Two or three witnesses, civil procedure. What, it, I mean, is there any concern for truth here? Or is it just, I believe you, um, using secular resources, 
that that can be a good thing. And th this is where I'm like, wait a minute. Do you see what's going on in our world? The sexually confused world that doesn't know what men and women are is going to help you with this? Um, hints at Jennifer, there's a hint that he takes, a shot he takes at the Jennifer Lyle situation. Uh, he doesn't say Jennifer Lyle, but he talks about uh, categorizing rape as uh, inappropriate relationship, which is what Baptist Press had done, except for the fact that there is not proof that it was rape. We don't know that, which is why it was using a more general term was the way Baptist Press originally went until they were threatened with legal action. And so he just, he just tears apart Baptist Press. I believe that's what he's doing without naming them. And it, it, again, it, it's, it's an attack. This whole thing is a vicious attack, actually. If you really listen to it, they keep implying that there's this whole group of people, white, uh, Christian, evangelical, Southern Baptist press. I mean, these are the, the, these are the problems. These are the people that aren't doing, they're the ones that are, uh, they're the ones that are the real issues. And that's the other thing that makes me suspicious. Cause you're like, well, those people, broadly speaking, and in the, in the, like that example, Baptist press, that wasn't an example of someone just saying like, well, you know, it was God's will that you were raped or it was, um, you know, you're, uh, I don't know, saying something really harsh or mean or like it's, it was reasonable what they did given the situation. And yet that's being, that's the example that's being used here as the wrong way to go. Uh, and then he, he says at the back, Adam, he's just survivors were the truth teller. We're the truth tellers. Hopefully it's proven now that we're the truth tellers. No, it's not proven that someone, if you slap the label survivor on someone that they're the truth teller. If, if someone, truth tellers are truth tellers. If you say something that's true and it's proven to be true, you can accept it as truth. If a friend comes to you, let's say, it's, it, this is, you know, just what we all, I think, normally do with someone we trust. They come to you and they say, this is my experience and you believe them. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, especially if they've proven themselves to be, you know, honest. And if it's someone you don't know and they say, this is my experience, I think it's still fine to just, it, not for, uh, you don't have, you're not required to believe them, but if it seems like it checks out and it's not something like you're not uh, influencing some decision based on their testimony, then sure. I mean, if you want to just kind of take it for granted that it's true, that's considered good manners. But as soon as you start believing someone and, and that has implications of vilifying other people and uh, changing policies in the Southern Baptist Convention or elsewhere, um, if that that's different. Now, now you're, you're required now to believe someone. And, and if you don't, then you're, you're a bad person, I guess. So it's the me too stuff just packaged into a Christian veneer. That's what you have here. And this is the guy who's now on the sexual abuse task force. That's the concern I have about someone like that. It's not the other stuff as much. Yeah. The, and there's plenty of things, plenty of political things that you could say about Todd Bankert, but that's, this is directly related to the role that he's going to play. So he'd be, in my mind, a revolutionary. He'd be a transformer in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and, and it's going to be on along the Me Too lines. Let's go uh, to the next issue here. I want to talk about Marvin Alasky. New York Times said in 2021 that um, Marvin Alasky's departure from World Magazine is just another example of the American news media sinking deeper into polarization. As one more conservative news outlet, which is had almost miraculously retained its independence, is concerned by Mr. Trump. Secular culture wars roiled world in the summer of 2020 over a podcast whose guests sharply criticized the protests after George Floyd's killing. Mr. Olasky pressed to include a more liberal view. More recently, Mr. Olasky said he faced criticism from readers for running the articles by a doctor recommending masks and vaccines to prevent the spread of COVID. Now, the person they're talking about is Daryl Harrelson. He was on a podcast for World, and Marvin Olasky did not like that, apparently according to the New York Times. Now, they're, they're saying this is, you know, they're, they're saying he's basically trying to protect evangelicalism from itself in the article. Now, another article, and so that was, who was that? Ben Smith. David Brooks in, from the New York Times, February 4th, 2022. says, World is a Christian news organization that has been run by a team of strong journalists like Marvin Alasky, who was its editor, and Mindy Bells, one of the bravest and best foreign correspondents in the country. It has long scrutinized the Christian world, reporting on Christian leaders who have gone astray. It's editorialized that Trump was unfit for power after Access Hollywood tape. But the culture at World deteriorated over the past few years. Tensions mounted over its reporting on COVID protocols and race and over disagreements about whether the 2020 election was stolen. Young reporters learned not to pitch stories that might offend Trumpist editors. Last fall, World's board introduced an opinion section focusing on conservative commentary without fully consulting Alasky. 
Albert Moeller, who was president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and endorsed Trump in 2020, was hired to run it. Alasky, Bells, and five other journalists submitted their resignations, unwilling to see their journalism become more partisan. So this is the New York Times spin on the situation at World Magazine. Now, here's this is from Capstone Report, but this is uh, Megan Basham came out on Twitter, who was at World, and she has verified that this is true. And this is what um, this is what Capstone Report says. In the wake of racial tensions within America and evangelicalism, Alaska formed a racial sensitivity committee. This committee was empowered to review coworkers' work and guided world editorial policy by shaping how world covered stories filtered through a racial lens. If that were not Orwellian enough, the committee was anonymous. World staffers were not sure who was on that committee. So basically, they've taken they've, they've set up a committee that's going to look at the content. So the, those who are writing editorials now have to go through this filter. Uh, and it's by this this committee that's going to be looking for racial sensitivity and whether or not it's racist. OK, you, you know, are you writing racist stuff? It's a new committee. And this, so, so the New York Times acts like, you know, Marvin Alasky is almost like a victim. All of this this Trump stuff came in and and pushed him out when in reality, Marvin Alasky was the one pushing the envelope here, implementing a racial sensitivity committee. He's the one that was the change agent. Uh, the New York Times piece claimed that world was roiled by the culture wars during the summer of 2020. It links to a podcast as a source of division within the world staff because the guest sharply criticized, and we talked about this, uh, Daryl Daryl Harrelson uh, was the guy. Harrison was the guy. Now, uh, this is um, something that was, just to give you an idea of where Marvin Alasky's at in the social justice e- war in the evangelical circles, the two podcast hosts I listen to the most while walking my dog are David French and Justin Gibney. According to, according to Marvin Alasky. If you're not familiar with them, this podcast will introduce you both. Now, let me give you a sample of what uh, Justin Gibney and David French sound like. And this isn't just like, oh, they had a bad day. And this, you know, because someone could say, oh, I listened to conversations that matter and then play one clip of mine that they disagreed with and be like, well, that's, he's not always talking about that. This is something that's representative of David French and Justin Gibney. This is like what they talk about. It's woke. It, that's, that's who they are. Here, just this is an example, though, and this is again, this is like the favorite podcast of Marvin Alasky. Here we go. Let me let me ask you this. This is one thing that I found. Uh, well, well, let me, I'll do two things. One, um, I'll stand in for the listeners who are saying, "Wait a minute, Justin." It seems like I, it, it, and for those of you who don't know Duke Kwan and and his book, it's a book about the concept of reparations, mm-hmm. and which is a super hot button word. So. There are going to be listeners who are saying, wait a minute, what are you talking about exactly here if you're talking about and you're referring to mm-hmm. a book about reparations? Like, wh- what do you what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think it's I mean, you can go to, to Luke 19 when you see uh, Zacchaeus. It's a repair when you when something has been taken uh, in the book, they talk a lot about white supremacy being a theft. Right. It's a theft of labor. It's a theft of identity. All these things. Mm -hmm. When that has happened, I believe there's a clear biblical ethic, whether we want to go to Exodus 21 through 22. uh, We can go to uh, Leviticus six and so on. There's a clear ethic that says when you have taken something or gained something that you didn't earn or that was somebody else's, you need to repair that. And if you look at the history of how African-Americans have been treated in this country who were Mm -hmm. enslaved and mistreated and not treated as equals under the law much longer than we've been treated as equals. If you even want to argue that that's the case right now, then there's clearly been a theft and that needs to be repaired. Now I'm not even talking about right now, some government, what the government needs to do or anything like I'm talking about what the church needs to do. And if you look at the history, the church has benefited in financial Mm -hmm. ways and other ways from that theft. And we need to have a better conversation about how we repair that. Um, and if we don't, I mean, it makes it very hard to move forward with re- racial reconciliation efforts. And, you know, this political divide that we've been talking about just gets larger and larger. The Protestant church in the U.S. is just a bunch of whole a whole bunch of brand new institutions. Right. You've got all kinds of non-denominational churches that have sprung up in storefronts, for example. They have a history, but it might be to 2011. Um, you know, that, that, that particular church, what do you say to a lot of these much newer Christian institutions? There's all Mm. kinds of them in, in evangelical spaces that have, that have exploded and grown up since the end of slavery, since the end of Jim Crow. Mm. And they're going to look at you and say, Justin, what are you talking about? We, my institution that I had, 
I'm a part of had nothing to do with it. I have had nothing to do with it. Yet this institutional analysis doesn't make any sense to me because we're not a, a seminary that benefited from slavery. We're a church that started with 23 people in an old, yep. you know, uh, an old 7-Eleven building 15 years ago. What, what do you Yeah, I would say, say that to, you're part of a culture and, and, and institutions that have benefited in general. Right. So, it's you know, even when in, whenever we look at sin or when we look at Christian ethics, mm-hmm. you got to look at the spirit of it, because if we want to get out of something, if we want to be overly technical and be lawyers like you and I are, we can do that. I wouldn't yeah. do that with God, though. <laughs> and I think if you really look at the spirit of honestly, I, if you really look at the spirit of what that <laughs> ethic is saying, have I in direct or indirect ways had a benefit? And even if I didn't, mm-hmm. has somebody been has something been taken from somebody? What is my responsibility? So, yeah, we can get technical. We can say, well, you know, if you look at this, we didn't exactly, you know, we weren't the ones. We shut this organization down and started something new. Yeah, but the benefits of that old institution still flow in, in one way or another to the new institutions, right? Even if, it, even if it isn't a line item in the budget, right? There's still ways that that flow from one or the other. So you, you got to look at the spirit of it. And Christians know that in other in other spaces we know that in other situations but we want to get very technical and just find ways to get out of it you can convince yourself of that i w- i would be uh worried that you could convince god of that uh, and so sure. we need to look at it a little bit a li- little bit differently there was this interesting moment that barely in your debate that barely scratched the surface of something that i've seen a lot of discussion of and and that is is there a distinction between old testament and new testament visions of justice and mm-hmm. you were quoting quite a bit from Jeremiah and other places in the Old Testament that really define justice in some pretty concrete ways. So it's not some sort right. of airy, who knows what just justice could mean a lot of different things. It was really, really pretty concrete. And I have seen this and I've gotten this pushback when I've quoted some of those same passages. Well, well, wait a minute. That's Old Testament stuff. New Testament stuff. New Testament is is fundamentally different, maybe not fundamentally, but subtly different in ways that really, really matter when talking about justice. And you, you kind of, you, yeah, you I just think that's that convenient. Degree, but like I, I since when did that. ethics and biblical principles like that completely mm-hmm. change to where it just fit, perfectly fits your situation. So in the old Testament, because they, you know, because, you know, the government mm-hmm. was different and because, um, Jesus, ha- Jesus hasn't come f- now, since those things have happened, now we don't have to restore people. Now I can steal from you and do other things. And because we're not in the, we're not under the Old Testament law anymore, I don't actually have to repair you. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that the the entire ethic of justice has mm-hmm. changed to the fact that you can be unjust and not have to repair people? Again, that's one of those things that it's bad theology. But if you want to try to explain it and give a long uh, uh, academic explanation, you might be able to convince yourself. But I don't I don't think that you're going to convince the one that matters that justice has really right. changed. The substance of the ethic has changed so much that you you can be unjust or injustice doesn't have to be repaired. That, that just doesn't make sense. Woke preacher clips always doing uh, a great job. They uh, put that together and it's uh, just it's, it's both of them together talking about reparations. <laughs> so there you go. That's. It, it, I don't know what to say. I mean, this is Marvin Alasky, a compassionate conservative guy. Um, I'm not saying that he necessarily agrees with reparations and all their forms, or but this is what he this is what he likes. This is what he listens to. This is uh, these are the two people he identified, and this isn't like unique for them to say stuff like that. So uh, that that just uh, woke, it was providential that woke preacher clips put that out uh, around the same time I saw this tweet. So uh, from Marvin Alasky. So uh, I figured I'd include that. Uh, let's talk about this uh, as well. Let's go, let's get to Glenn Youngkin real quick. So a few stories here. Number one this is August third. Uh, Youngkin's pick for Historic Resource Board resigns after remarks about the Civil War. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me let me uh, here. I'll put myself up here so you can we can read this together. Um, actually, let's not even read it because I don't want to take all the time to do this. Let me just summarize it for you. Uh, one of the people working in the administration. Uh, who was on the State Board of Historic Resources, uh, resigned, Anne McLean is her name, uh, after the governor, after a meeting with the governor, and uh, 
And basically the reason was, is because the gov governor disagrees with her and she had said things like this. And she's in Virginia. Remember that she's in Virginia where they've been ripping down all these monuments. And she says, I think that Southerners knew that their story of why they fought the Civil War was not being told correctly. McLean said, McLean said about Confederate monuments during an interview with a conservative radio host last year, according to Richmond TV station, fake news or false narratives are not new. And this whole tragedy is that these statues were built to tell the true story of the American South to people 500 years from now. So that, that'll get you canceled. And this isn't a Democrat doing it, it's a Republican. And let me just, for strategic purposes here, for Republicans, not that they care, but look, if you let the Democrats, every time, it, all the Democrats have to do is connect you to something that they've deemed to be offensive, racist, horrible. And, and then you just go along with them in their lie and be like, well, yeah, of course it, it is all those things uh, because you can make the connection to, to this. Uh, look, look, at, look at what Mississippi said when they seceded. That means that, that statue for those who fought and died uh, must mean what Mississippi's secession document said. And this one line about the political issue of slavery, or, I mean, that, those are the kinds of stretches that they're making. If you go along with it, though, and you're saying that anyone who defends these monuments must be canceled, they can't have their position, they're not acceptable, then you let the, you're letting the Democrats be the gatekeepers and they're going to run the same play on you every single time. They're going to run on you because it works, because you're letting it work. And it's not the only issue that Republicans do this on. They just let the Democrats be the gatekeepers. you got to have a spine. And Youngkin doesn't. Youngkin has said things like, I remember during the campaign, he's like, well, he's against the tearing down of these monuments. He's, he's against that thing. He hasn't done a thing since he's been elected to restore any of them, put them back, say anything. I mean, this is classic politician talk. And then someone in his administration supports the monuments. Well, can't have that. Can't have that. So for those in Virginia who are traditional, who wanted to keep these monuments, uh, they're probably, you know, you need to think about this. This is the guy he all elected during the primary. Um, here's another one. Youngkin, marriage equality is the law in Virginia. Oh, by the way, before I leave the monument topic, I just got to say this. There's a whole historical commission now in Massachusetts trying to change the Massachusetts state seal, which is kind of funny because it's Massachusetts and they're using the same, all the same arguments, uh, the people who are defending this seal that were used to defend Confederate monuments. Uh, you know, it's the same exact arguments, but yet, anyway, the hypocrisy is amazing because they'll go and they'll, in the same breath, there was a news article where they were vilifying Southerners, but then, but not Massachusetts because we won the Civil War, but it's like, but their, it's, they, their seal has the same issue that uh, they have. It, it, anyway, I, I can show you a picture of it. I wasn't planning on doing that, but it, it's basically, it looks like it's a, it's a white man um, uh, or a European over a Native American. I'm going to actually pull it up just so I can describe it better. Uh, it, Yeah, okay. So I'm looking at it right now. So there's a sword, the arm of a white, uh, presumably a white guy because in Native Americans don't have swords and the sleeve is that of a white guy right over uh, a Native American with a bow. And, and this is racist. And um, <laughs> you have the Boston Globe. It's no Confederate flag, but our banner is pretty awful. It's no Confederate. Because we know that's the worst of all. But anyway, um, that's uh, that monument update there. Okay, so so that's one issue. Now here's, here's the bigger, bigger one here in my mind. Youngkin, marriage equality is the law in Virginia. Republican, so, so he says this, I'm just going to summarize. He tells the media that uh, even after the Supreme Court case overturning Roe v. Wade, that if they were going to overturn Obergefell, that marriage equality is the law in Virginia. Well, no, it's not. But he just says that. You know, we're going to do everything to protect same-sex marriage in Virginia. Like, okay, we, we can actually protect it because it's the law. Well, no, it's not. And, well, why would Glenn Youngkin say that? Well, maybe this shines some light on it. During June, during Pride Month, Glenn Youngkin, to some surprise, this story says, Youngkin hosts series of Pride events. He didn't host just one. He hosted a series of LGBT events. Yes, that's right. Celebrating LGBT. Glenn Youngkin, the strong Christian Republican. Uh, and the, and on the, you, you might say, well, at least he's pro-life. Well, here is Youngkin on the pro-life issue. Uh, this is the headline. Governor Youngkin dodges questions on abortion ban at contraception. And it's political talk, the whole thing. It's just political talk. Youngkin is now backing a ban on most abortions after 15 weeks, a proposal he believes can get bipartisan support. 
Uh, I can't even begin to look. And, and, and so he says on an interview, supposedly, that he was willing to ban abortion with some pro-life people, I guess. But then when he's asked about it, he dodges it. Uh, I, I can't even begin to look past this year right now. What we've got is a Democratic-controlled Senate and Republican-controlled House, and they need to work together. And an absolute no at the beginning of the discussion just is not a constructive place. Um, and let's see. Uh, and there is going to be a bill introduced to abolish abortion. And, you know, you wonder if Youngkin would even sign it. Uh, anyways, not being clear um, on any of this stuff. And, and so this is what we have uh, with Glenn Youngkin. I mean, he is a politician. He is a politician. Uh, okay, so that, yeah, that's, that's all I wanted to talk about today. Hopefully that was helpful for you all uh, in some way. Uh, a little bit of different things, obviously, uh, that I was talking about here. But um, all I think important uh, politically, uh, we just got to do our homework on, on candidates. You can't just trust that what they're telling you is necessarily who they are. Look at their record. Look at what they put out there publicly. And I think if people did that with Youngkin, we, we wouldn't be in this. You, you could have gotten probably any of the Republicans in there. Pete Snyder could have been in there. He was the second runner up. But it had to be, it was Glenn Youngkin that, that got it. And now I think Virginia is kind of going to be up a river a little bit because uh, they, when you have a horrible Democrat party and then you have a Republican party that's so compromised, there, there's nothing left to really uphold any traditional values, any Christian morality, none of that. Um, and then, of course, also, uh, you know, do your homework on the people, even in your denominations. Todd Bankart, really? Have you looked at his record on the very job that he has, Sexual Abuse Task Force? Look at his beliefs on this. And if you look at him, you'll see, well, this guy is a change agent. This guy is subversive. He's going to be uh, a, uh, he, he's going to push the Me Too agenda. This isn't, and we've talked a lot about how that's not a biblical agenda. Uh, and then, of course, even those who are, are true and time, you know, people that you've trusted forever, some of you at least, like Marvin Alasky, uh, you know, think circumstances can change and people can, and, and I don't know that circumstances did change all that much with Marvin Alasky, I'm not sure, but even people with good names in evangelicalism, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that they're not also affected by the social justice creep. And so I'm not trying to get you to be like paranoid, but just be practice wise discernment. Just do a little bit of homework on, on leaders. Uh, if you're going to go to a retreat or an event, speaking of retreats, you should come to the one with Russell Fuller, do some homework on him. He's great. But if you're going to go to a retreat or a conference or uh, calling a pastor, you know, look at their social media, you know, not to have a gotcha moment or anything, but just try to see what, what are they about? And, and, you know, see, see what they think about certain things because people can present one thing to one audience and one thing to another. It's not always accurate. So if there's a common thread, I guess that would be it. All right, more coming. We're going to talk about the Gospel Coalition in the next podcast. And it's going to be good. So God bless. Bye now. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.